Book One, Chapter Four of History of the Reformation in the Sixteenth Century, Volume One, by Jean Henri Mel d'Aubigne, translated by Henry Beveridge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chapter Four Christianity Imperishable, Opposition to Rome, Frederick the Wise, His Character, His Anticipation. The evils which then afflicted Christendom, that is, superstition, infidelity, ignorance, vain speculation, and corruption of manners, all natural fruits of the human heart, were not new upon the earth. Often they had figured in the history of states. In the East, especially, various religions which had had their day of glory, but had become enervated, had been attacked by them, and, yielding to the assault, had fallen under it, never again to rise. Is Christianity to experience the same fate? Will she be destroyed like these ancient popular religions? Will the blow which gave them death be strong enough to deprive her of life? Is there nothing that can save her? Will those hostile powers that now oppress her, and which have already overthrown so many other forms of worship, be able to seat themselves without opposition on the ruins of the Church of Jesus Christ? No, there is in Christianity what there was not in any of these popular religions. It does not, like them, present certain abstract ideas, interwoven with traditions and fables destined to fall sooner or later under the attacks of human reason, it contains pure truth, founded on facts capable of standing the scrutiny of every upright and enlightened mind. Christianity does not aim merely at exciting certain vague religious sentiments, which, when they have once lost their charm, cannot be again revived. Its end is to satisfy, and it in fact does satisfy, all the religious wants of human nature, whatever the degree of refinement to which it may have attained. It is not the work of man, whose labours fade and are effaced. It is the work of God, who sustains what he creates, and the pledge of its duration is the promise of its divine head. It is impossible that human nature can ever rise so high as to look down on Christianity, or if, for a time, human nature do think herself able to dispense with it, it soon appears with renewed youth and life, as alone fit for curing souls. Degenerate nations then return with new ardour to those ancient, simple, and powerful truths which, in the hour of their infatuation, they had turned from with disdain. Christianity, in fact, displayed in the sixteenth century the same regenerating power which it had exerted in the first. After fifteen centuries, the same truths produced the same results. In the days of the Reformation, as in those of Paul and Peter, the gospel, with invincible force, overthrew the mightiest obstacles. Its sovereign power was manifested from north to south among nations differing most widely from each other in manners, character, and intellectual development. Then, as in the days of Stephen and James, it lighted up the fire of enthusiasm and devotedness in nations which seemed almost extinguished, and exalted them even to the height of martyrdom. How was this revival of the church and of the world accomplished? 
The observer might then have seen the operation of two laws by which God governs the world at all times. First, he has ages to act in. He begins his preparations leisurely and long before the event which he designs to accomplish. Then, when the time is come, he produces the greatest results by the smallest means. It is thus he acts in nature and history. When he wishes an immense tree to grow, he deposits a little grain in the earth, and when he wishes to renew his church, he employs the humblest instrument to accomplish what emperors and all the learned and eminent in the church were unable to perform. By and by we will search for and we will discover this little seed which a divine hand deposited in the earth in the days of the Reformation. But at present let us endeavour to ascertain the various means by which God prepared this great event. At the period when the Reformation was ready to burst forth, Rome appeared to be in peace and safety. One would even have said that nothing could disturb her triumph after the great victories which she had gained. General councils, those upper and lower houses of Catholicity, had been subdued. The Vaudois and the Hussites had been suppressed. No university, with the exception perhaps of that of Paris, which sometimes raised its voice when its kings gave the signal, doubted the infallibility of the oracles of Rome. Each seemed to have accepted his allotted share in her power. The higher clergy deemed it better to give a distant chief the tenth part of their revenues and quietly consume the other nine than to hazard all for an independence which would cost much and yield little. The lower clergy, decoyed by the perspective of rich benefices, which ambition made them fancy and discover in the distance, were willing, by a little slavery, to realise the flattering hopes which they entertained. Besides, they were almost everywhere so oppressed by the chiefs of the hierarchy that they could scarcely struggle under their powerful grasp, far less rise boldly and hold up their heads. The people knelt before the Roman altar, and kings themselves, though they began in secret to despise the Bishop of Rome, durst not venture to attack his power with a hand which the age would have deemed sacrilegious. But opposition, if it seemed externally to have slackened or even ceased when the Reformation burst forth, had more inward strength. A nearer view of the edifice will disclose to us more than one symptom which presaged its downfall. General councils, though vanquished, had diffused their principles throughout the church and carried division into the enemy's camp. The defenders of the hierarchy were divided into two parties, that is, those who maintained the system of absolute papal domination on the principles of Hildebrand, and those who were desirous of a constitutional papal government offering guarantees and giving liberty to the churches. Nor was this the whole. Faith in the infallibility of the Roman bishop was greatly shaken among all parties, and if no voice was raised in opposition to it, it was because everyone rather desired anxiously to retain the little faith in it which he still had. The least shock was dreaded, because it might overturn the edifice. Christendom held in its breath, but it was to prevent a disaster by which its own existence might have been endangered. 
from the moment when man trembles at the thought of abandoning a long venerated belief it has lost its influence over him and even the appearance of respect which he may be desirous to keep up will not be long maintained the reformation had been gradually prepared in three different worlds the political the ecclesiastical and the literary political bodies private christians and theologians the literary and the learned all contributed to the revolution of the sixteenth century let us take a survey of this triple opposition concluding with the literary class though at the period immediately preceding the revolution it was perhaps the most powerful of all first among political bodies rome had lost much of its ancient credit of this the church herself was the primary cause for properly speaking it was not the errors and superstitions which she had introduced into christianity that gave the fatal blow before christendom could have been able to condemn her on this account it must have stood higher than the church in respect of intellectual and religious development but there was a class of things which the laity well understood and it was by these they judged the church she had become of the earth earthy the sacerdotal empire which tyrannized over the nations existed solely by the illusions of its subjects and having a halo for its crown had forgotten its nature and left heaven with his spheres of light and glory to plunge into the vulgar interests of burghers and princes though representing those who were born of the spirit the priests had exchanged the spirit for the flesh they had abandoned the treasures of knowledge and the spiritual power of the word for the brute force and tinkling of the age the thing happened naturally enough at first the church pretended that her object was to defend spiritual order but in order to protect it from the opposition and assaults of the people she had resorted to earthly means to vulgar weapons which a false prudence had induced her to take up when the church had once begun to handle such weapons her spirituality was at an end her arm could not become temporal without rendering her heart temporal also the appearance presented soon became the reverse of what it had been at the outset at first she had thought proper to employ the earth in defending heaven now she employed heaven to defend the earth theocratic forms became in her hands merely a mean of accomplishing worldly interests the offerings which the people laid at the feet of the sovereign pontiff of christendom were expended in maintaining the luxury of his court and the soldiers of his armies his spiritual power served him as a ladder on which to climb and then put the kings and nations of the earth under his feet the charm broke and the power of the church was lost as soon as the men of the world could say she is become as one of us the great were the first to examine the titles of this imaginary power this examination might perhaps have been sufficient to overthrow rome but happily for her the education of princes was everywhere in the hands of her adepts these inspired their august pupils with sentiments of veneration for the roman pontiff the rulers of the people grew up within the sanctuary and princes of ordinary capacity could never entirely quit it several even had no other ambition than to be found in it at the hour of death they preferred to die under a cassock rather than a crown 
Italy, that apple of discord in Europe, perhaps contributed most to open the eyes of kings. Having occasion to communicate with popes on matters which concerned the temporal prince of the states of the church and not the bishop of bishops, they were greatly astonished when they saw them ready to sacrifice rights which appertained to the pontiff in order to secure certain advantages to the prince. They discovered that these pretended organs of truth had recourse to all the petty wiles of politics, to deceit, dissimulation, and perjury. Then, at length, the bandage which education had tied upon the eyes of princes fell off. Then wily Ferdinand of Aragon tried stratagem against stratagem. Then the impetuous Louis Twelfth caused a medal to be struck with this inscription, Perdam Babylonis Nomen. I will destroy the name of Babylon. And honest Maximilian of Austria, grieved to the heart on learning the treachery of Leo X, declared openly, Henceforth this Pope, too, is to me nothing better than a villain. Now I can say that throughout my life not one Pope has kept faith with me, or been true to his word. If it please God, I hope that this one will be the last." Kings and states began, moreover, to feel impatient under the heavy burden which the popes imposed on them, and to demand that Rome should free them from contributions and annats which wasted their resources. Already had France opposed Rome with a pragmatic sanction, and the heads of the empire claimed to share in it. In 1511 the emperor took part in the Council of Pisa, and even had at one time an idea of seizing the popedom for himself. But among the rulers of the people none were so useful to the Reformation as the prince in whose states it was to commence. Of all the electors of that period, the most powerful was Frederick of Saxony, surnamed the Wise. Having succeeded in 1487 to the hereditary states of his family, he had received the electoral dignity from the emperor, and in 1493 undertook a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he was dubbed Knight of the Holy Sepulchre. His power and influence, his riches and liberality, raised him above all his equals. God chose him to be the tree under whose shelter the seed of truth might be able to push forth its first blade, without being uprooted by storms from without. No man was better fitted for this noble service. Frederick possessed the general esteem, and in particular had the entire confidence of the emperor, whom he even represented in his absence. His wisdom consisted not in the dexterous arts of a wily politician, but in an enlightened and foreseeing prudence, the first maxim of which was never to offer violence from interested motives to the laws of honour and religion. At the same time he felt in his heart the power of the word of God. One day, when Staupitz, the vicar-general, was with him, the conversation turned upon those who entertained the people with vain declamation. All discourses, said the elector, which are filled only with subtleties and human traditions, are wondrously cold, nerveless, and feeble. It is impossible to advance one subtlety which another subtlety cannot destroy. The holy scriptures alone are clothed with such power and majesty that, destroying all our learned logical contrivances, they press us home and constrain us to exclaim, Never man so spake. Staupitz, having signified that he was entirely of this opinion, 
the elector shook him cordially by the hand and said promise me that you will always think so frederick was just the prince required at the outset of the reformation too much feebleness on the part of its friends might have allowed it to be strangled while too much haste might have caused the storm which at the very first began with hollow murmuring sound to gather against it to burst too soon frederick was moderate but strong he had that christian virtue which god always requires in those who would adore his ways he waited upon god he put in practice the wise counsel of gamaliel if this counsel or this work be of men it will come to naught but if it be of god ye cannot overthrow it acts chapter 5 verses 38 and 39 matters said this prince to spengler of nuremberg one of the most enlightened men of his time matters are come to such a point that there is nothing more which men can do in them god alone must act to his mighty hand therefore we commit these great events which are too difficult for us providence made an admirable choice in selecting such a prince to protect his work in its infancy end of book 1 chapter 4